Good morning, everybody. Um, you may be wondering why we started today with a clip from a Jackie Chan fight scene. Apart from the fact that I love Jackie Chan and I consider that one of his fight scenes is always a great way to start a sermon, there was actually a deeper purpose in using that clip. One of the things that makes Jackie Chan so funny is that he always seems to be clumsy and bumbling. Uh, he stumbles from one fight scene to the next and yet he always wins in the end. Despite appearances, he shows in the end that he's always in control. Today we look at the drama of Jesus' journey to the cross begin to unfold. Now I know the link between Jackie Chan and John 18 is a stretch uh, and perhaps it's not entirely fitting to use something so frivolous to introduce a real-life drama of cosmic proportions that changed history and changed the whole direction and future of humanity. But I figured at this time, well, we all need a laugh. And uh, even as we think about the events that lead up to Easter. Well, in John 18, we see that the king apparently that the king is apparently defeated by the forces of evil. We see in John 18 a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And it seems that this is the hour where the world triumphs. But then appearances can be deceiving because all along King Jesus is the one pulling the strings and in control of the dreadful events that take him to the cross. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for this story, which is all part of the reason we celebrate Easter. We thank you that we have a king who refused to play by the rules of the world, but rather chose obedience to the Father in choosing to go to the cross. And in doing that, he gained victory and brought hope and life to us. Please give us ears to hear and hearts that are encouraged during this difficult time. Amen. Well, the story starts on the last night of Jesus' life here in his earthly body. He goes with his disciples into an olive grove known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems appropriate that the events that follow take place at night. In John's Gospel, night and darkness are associated with evil and the forces that oppose God. And here we see Jesus is delivered into his enemy's hands. He is arrested after being betrayed by Judas. He is taken to Annas, who used to be the high priest. He interrogates Jesus, then sends him to the current high priest, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Finally, Jesus is taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who questions him and ends up handling him, handing him over to be crucified. John sets up the whole drama in, in this chapter as a clash between two kingdoms, the world who comes at Jesus with a sword and violence, and God's kingdom with Jesus as its king. He is a king who refuses to fight fire with fire. He appears to meekly surrender to his enemies, but as the story reaches its shocking climax at the cross, we will see that in the end, he was in fact the puppet master who is pulling the strings and the Jewish leaders and the Romans were all his puppets that he controlled 
to pull off a wonderful victory. We're going to be looking at chapter 18 from the perspective of these two kingdoms and look at the actions and motivations of the major players in our story and we'll end up with the hero, Jesus, and see what we can learn for ours, for, for us, for our life. Well, firstly, the kingdom of the world. And we'll start with the Jewish leaders. We first meet the Jewish leaders in the garden where Jesus is arrested. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. They were in league with Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. We learn elsewhere that they paid 30 pieces of silver to lead them to Jesus. And they came to him with armed weapons. Now there are a couple of hints in the words and actions of the Jewish leaders that they were more interested in doing whatever it takes to find Jesus guilty than in seeing justice done and giving him a fair trial. Firstly, have a look at verse 14. John has just told us that Jesus has been taken to Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Caiaphas was a sitting high priest at the time. Then this is what John says about, about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. In other words, that it was worth sacrificing one man who may be innocent so that the people would be saved. John records Caiaphas saying the same thing back in chapter 11. There the Jewish leaders were plotting to do away with Jesus. They were worried that all the people would start following him. And then the Romans who ruled Judea, basically the old land of Israel, would come and take away their political and religious freedom that they had. And as well as that, perhaps destroy the temple. And these guys, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were going to be the big losers in all this. So getting Jesus out of the way was a political decision and Caiaphas was prepared to throw justice out the window. But not only him, because the other leaders were in on it too. Jesus is interrogated by Annas in verses 19 to 23. This was a kangaroo court that went against the Jewish law for legal proceedings. Capital cases, cases that could pass the death sentence, weren't allowed to be held at night. And yet here they were in the dead of night. The court is supposed to hear witnesses for the defence first, but there is no one to be found speaking up for Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus is struck in the face, which was a violation of the rights of the accused. Well, after the sham court pronounces a guilty verdict on Jesus, he is taken to the seat of Roman power to Pilate, the Roman governor, to get him to rubber stamp Jesus being condemned to death. The Jews had no power themselves to execute Jesus, so they needed Rome to do their dirty work for them. The hypocrisy of the leaders is pointed out by John in verse 28. Verse 28 reads, By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They avoided going into Pilate's palace so that they wouldn't be made unclean. And yet they happily resorted to corruption, violence, abuse of power to illegally condemn an innocent man. 
And then a final act of hypocrisy is when Pilate, even Pilate, the brutal unjust figure behind Roman oppression, he recognises that Jesus is innocent and he tries to get him released. The Jewish leaders insist on Pilate condemning Jesus and releasing a violent criminal, Barabbas. Have a look at verse 40. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. The Greek word for rebellion means actually more like an insurrection, meaning a violent rebellion where, where, where there was murder involved. A murderer allowed to walk free by the religious leaders. The guardians of the Jewish law, which is supposed to be all about God's justice and mercy. Well, we come to the second player in this drama uh, to come under the spotlight, and that's Simon Peter, the disciple who was closest to Jesus. Now, you may be wondering why I've put him on the wrong side. In this story, why he's included in the kingdom of the world. That's because in these few hours, as the heat is turned up on Jesus, Peter responds as the world responds. He hasn't changed sides, but under pressure, he gives in to fear and self-preservation rather than trusting in God's plans. The focus is put on Peter in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, it's not hard to understand Peter's reaction here, is it? Jesus' enemies had just arrived to arrest him. They were armed and dangerous. It was the dead of night. Peter was only trying to defend his master and the rest of the disciples. But we see from Jesus' reaction that there was no place in his plans to fight fire with fire. So Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, as I said, Peter's response is quite understandable and we may well sympathise with his desire to defend Jesus even if it was the wrong reaction. There's something noble in him rushing to Jesus' aid, isn't there? But the same can't be said for the next time we hear from Peter because this time he acts out of pure cowardice and a desire for self-preservation. Peter is allowed into the high priest's courtyard so he can be as near as possible to Jesus as the legal proceedings go ahead. A servant girl asks him if, if he is one of Jesus' disciples. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus replies, I am not. Pete, sorry, Peter replies, I am not. And then down in verses 25 to 27, he's asked by two others if he was one of Jesus' followers. Twice more, he denies the truth. Now, I think it's significant here that John sandwiches Peter's two denials in between Jesus' interrogation by the high priest in verses 19 to 24 and then his questioning by Pilate at the end of the chapter. You see, John wants to contrast Jesus' plain confession of the truth, his refusal to lie, his refusal to wriggle out of his situation with Peter's denial of the truth. And, the, and one other contrast as well. Have a look at Jesus' response to his arresting party in verse 5. When Jesus asks them who they want, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus tells them plainly in verse 5, I am he. 
Then he repeats it again in verse 8. I told you, I am he. But Peter, on the other hand, denies the truth. I am not him. I am not him. Well, then the, the scene moves from Peter hiding in the shadows to the stately palace of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Jesus is taken there by the Jewish authorities early in the morning. Throughout his interaction with Jesus and his accusers, we see Pilate trying to avoid responsibility. Verse 31, he tells the Jewish leaders to take Jesus back and judge him themselves. He doesn't want to have to deal with the whole affair, but the leaders want to push for the death penalty and only Pilate can pronounce that. And so Pilate reluctantly proceeds to try Jesus, to try to get to the truth. But then the interrogation takes on an unexpected turn for Pilate because he finds himself losing control of the questioning as Jesus turns the spotlight onto the Roman governor. Have a look at verse 37. Pilate wants to know if Jesus calls himself a king. And this is how Jesus replies. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Suddenly, it's Pilate who's under pressure because Jesus has just challenged him to be on the side of truth and to listen to him. And the subtext is that Jesus, and not Pilate, is the one in control. But Pilate doesn't like where this is going. Once again, he avoids responsibility for having to make a decision about Jesus. Look at verse 38. He cynically dismisses Jesus' claims. What is truth, he says. But still, he thinks Jesus is innocent. He still wants all this to be over. I find no basis for a charge against this man, he says. And then he finds a way to avoid responsibility again. Instead of making a decision that is right, but he knows could be unpopular, he puts it back on the Jewish leaders and the people. He decides to release a prisoner according to their custom at Passover time. And he hopes that they will choose Jesus. But when they choose a violent criminal... He refuses to take responsibility and see that justice is done. The stakes are high for Pilate. He doesn't dare risk getting these Jews offside because they have a history of troublemaking and rebellion against the Romans. Out of fear and self-preservation, he gives in to them and condemns Jesus. Well, when we look at all three of these players, the Jewish leaders, Peter, Pontius Pilate, they all respond in quite different ways, but with the same motivation, fear and self-preservation. And that's the way of the, of the kingdom of this world. There is a desperate need to try to manipulate events, to stay in control and avoid the things they fear. For the Jewish leaders, it's all the people following Jesus, losing their position and status. For Peter, it was a fear of discovery and being arrested along with Jesus. And for Pilate, it was the fear of rebellion, fear of the people. And so they resort to lies, violence, manipulating the truth. But now we turn to the ways of the kingdom of God. 
And we see in Jesus, in his actions and motivations, a very different picture. Instead of fear, we see Jesus responding with a confidence that seems to fly in the face of circumstances. Instead of acting out of self-preservation, there is a trust in the plans and purposes of God. And rather than being desperate not to lose control of things, Jesus shows that at every step, he is the one pulling the strings, controlling events. Jesus acts with confidence. When the arresting party arrives armed with swords at night, it must have been a pretty fearful moment. They declare that they're after Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, says Jesus. And look at the response of his accusers in verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. A strange reaction for the arresting party, don't you think? Well, they responded that way because of Jesus' answer. answer. In the original language, there's no, I am, there's no he as in I am he. It's just Jesus said, I am. That's the same phrase that God uses to describe himself in the Old Testament. God appears to Moses and says his name is I am. We can be pretty sure that John is telling us that Jesus is making a claim here to be God. Now, of course, the Jewish leaders wouldn't have believed that. They didn't fall back in worship, but rather they fell back. They recognized what Jesus was claiming, and it seems that they were shocked and that they literally taken aback out of surprise and shock. Jesus is confident in who he is. There's no fear as he stands before the high priest. There's no fear as he is interrogated by Pilate, the man who has power to execute him. And that's because Jesus acts out of trust. He has no thought for his own self-preservation because he trusts that he is in his father's hands. Have a look at verse 11. Peter has just cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? That cup given to him by the father is the suffering that he knows he must go through on his way to the cross. John's Gospel is peppered with quotes from the Old Testament that show that Jesus' life, and especially his death, has, is all about God's plan from the beginning. And John makes it clear that these events in this dark night are also part of that grand plan. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus knew because it was all foretold in Scripture and the Father had revealed it to him. And then in verse 32, the Jewish leaders have just told Pilate that they didn't have the right to execute anyone, but clearly they wanted Pilate to give Jesus the death sentence. And verse 32 says this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus knew what was in store for him, but he refuses to resort to violence. But instead he trusts that his Father is with him and he will protect him all the way through it. Along with confidence and trust, Jesus acts as one who is in control over all these events. 
When the arresting party appears on the scene, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. Verse 4, he asks, knowing very well, of course, that they want him, but he asks, who is it you want? He allows himself to be arrested. He is the one who takes the initiative. And he shows himself in control when he turns Pilate's interrogation of him into the king questioning Pilate. Will you listen to the voice of truth? Confidence, trust, control over events, a refusal to give in to fear or to act out of self-preservation. Well, to finish off, I want to reflect on how God's kingdom works in this story and on Jesus' actions and what, the, what they might mean for us. Firstly, despite appearances, God is in control. We've seen this in previous weeks, haven't we, where Jesus tells his disciples that he will leave and that they will be scattered. It seems that it's a disaster is coming for his disciples. And yet, and, and then here in chapter 18, we see Jesus' words fulfilled. He is arrested. He is taken from them. Only Peter and an unnamed disciple try to stay with Jesus. But then Peter denies his master. Jesus is condemned to death. But through it all, we've seen that all these events have been predicted by Jesus, as well as having been written about in the Old Testament. God is orchestrating everything. And the soldiers, the chief priests, Pontius Pilate, they're all God's instruments playing his tune. We've talked before about how we can apply this truth to our situation God has allowed the biggest health crisis in our lifetimes he's in control over how many cases of coronavirus there are he's in control over how steep the curve is and so we can be confident that we are resting in his hands and the other thing I wanted to say is this John 18 shows us that God achieves his purposes, not through armies, not through the sword, not through people scheming and manipulating and lying, but through faithfulness and trust in his plans. God was able to rescue the whole of humanity because Jesus was faithful. Instead of fighting off his accusers, he drank the cup that the Father gave him. And that's the way that God is calling us to respond as well. To be faithful, to trust in his plans. No matter how much things are spiraling out of control, we never reach a point where it's time to stop praying and, and, and time to stop reading God's word and start relying on our God's resources as if God can only help us so far and the rest is up to us. We're all being bombarded with by noise and voices all around us. Social media, news feeds, different voices claiming to give us the truth that we need to hear. But I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to listen to every voice that's out there. 
because they can fill us with worry and panic that things are spiraling out of control. Instead, I want to encourage you to listen to the voice of truth. Jesus says in verse 38, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Listen to his voice amidst the panic. Be quietly confident that the God who worked his purposes through the disaster of Jesus' arrest and condemnation is at work in you and through you at this time. Amen. Well, may God bless you as you allow his word to soak into your heart today. And to once again, to help us, as we've done in previous weeks, to help us, we're going to have some questions to consider um, in pairs or in small groups for, for the rest of our time. And uh, here's, here's a preview of the questions. Uh, first question, from what we learned today about the nature of God's kingdom, how do you think he may be using the current crisis to fulfill his purposes? And then the second question, think about how Jesus responded to his arrest and trial. What might it look like for you to live in faithfulness and trust now?